Let's jump into our series, week three, Sacred Overlap. This, this series is really helping us to identify a little bit further what does it look like as we lean into faithfully living in the space between. The space between heaven and earth, or what Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is here now, but not completely realized just yet. And yet, here, take note of this. Jesus wasn't living with one foot in heaven and one foot in earth. No, he was living with two feet firmly planted in both, or what John Stott said, with two feet in both the word and the world. And that's what we want to learn. We want to learn how do we live faithfully in this space between this thin space of sorts. And so I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 29 kind of a longer, lengthier portion of scripture. Would you stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of God's word this morning? This is our theme text today. We stand simply to recognize that what we read this morning, it's not just some other Harry Potter novel. This isn't just some nonfiction or even fictional book that we're reading for school. This is so much more. It's so much weightier, so much even more beautiful and brings life into our, into our actual physical and spiritual lives. And so we read from Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1, then we'll jump down to verses 4 through 11. It says, Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now there is a ton of historical context that's really important to note as we're reading Jeremiah. Not so important for us today, but what is important to note for where we're going this morning as it relates to this particular teaching is that the people of Israel had been exiled to a homeland or to a land rather that was, that was not their homeland. And it was about 750 miles away from where they were previously. Jerusalem to Babylon, 750 miles straight shot, more about 1,700 miles if you kind of navigate the rivers and the terrain and the, and the mountains of that region. And so the people, they had been taken to a place that was completely unfamiliar to them. And so Jer Jeremiah now is speaking to the people on behalf of God. And this is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of the heavens armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives who are exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry and have children. They find, then find spouses for them so that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Now, before we move any further, note once again that these people were taken from their homeland and they receive a letter from somebody who's speaking on behalf of God. And God is telling these people, hey y'all, don't try to escape the place that you're in exile to. No, I want you to, I want you to plant homes or plant gardens. You can't plant homes. I want you to build homes. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to pray and, and, and try, to, try to seek the prosperity of the, of the city. Now, he goes on, he says, pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare, and determine, its welfare will determine your welfare. And this is what the Lord of the heavens armies, the God of Israel says. Now catch this. He says, also, don't let your prophets and fortune tellers tell you who are, in, who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I've not sent them says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come 
and do for you all the good things I've promised and I'll bring you home again. And here's that really popular verse 11 that many of us are familiar with. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. I want to share today, and this is going to sound a little bit odd, and that's okay. Just, let's just wrestle with the tension of how odd this sounds for a moment. I want to share today from a message entitled, Inhabitants and Foreigners. Can we say that together? Inhabitants and Foreigners. How do we live faithfully in the space between as inhabitants in the world that we are in and yet as Jesus followers, there ought to be this tension within us that we feel a bit like a foreigner at times. Like we don't completely fit in. Let's pray once more. Oh, Father, we come before you today. Oh, just so grateful for your love, God. You're so, so unbelievably good. Father, wherever we are this morning, would you meet us there? If there is within any of us this sense in which you are anything but good, God, would you help expose that lie and reveal your truth of how big and tall and wide and long your love is for us, for our children, and for every single church that is gathering across our community right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Go Buckeyes. Speaking of the Bucks, the Lady Bucks are looking pretty good right now, are they not? Just won the, the Big Ten. Good stuff. Anyway, moving on. How many folks in here like history? Can I see your hands? Any, any history lovers in here? Man, I, I love me some history too. I, I also like Venn diagrams. If you've been coming to Ethos for any length of time, you know I've got a, I've got a thing, like an affinity for Venn, for Venn diagrams, no doubt. That's why this series does my heart happy. And in fact, I came to discover that it was, it was John Venn who Venn diagrams are named after. Now, John Venn did not, he did not introduce these overlapping circles, but he did reintroduce them. He made them famous in the world of mathematics, and I'm trying to bring them back and make them famous in the world of church, but, but not really. Maybe someday they'll call them smoker diagrams, probably not, but who knows, who knows? But what's interesting, though, is that these these Venn diagrams hold, hold a, a unique history to them as well. The, the, I used to think that maybe the reason why I like Venn diagrams is because the center of them, if you kind of turn it horizontally, looks a lot like a football. And I like Venn diagrams about as much as I like football. And, but furthermore, though, I, I found out that this actually already has a name for it. This isn't a football shape. The, the name for the center of Venn diagrams is actually a mandala. Anybody know that before? Can I see your hand? Yeah, a handful of you. Of course you would know that, Jeff. But the rest of us idiots in here, we don't know anything. You know, I did not know that. Sorry, I did not know that. But, but I think it's interesting, though, because throughout centuries, artists have sought to express stories of God through vivid pictures, through illustration and rich symbolism. Stained glass windows actually used to be called a poor man's Bible because these colorful panes told the stories of Scripture visually for a population that was largely illiterate. And stained glass artists would often place Jesus inside a mandala, believing it was the clearest way to accurately express theology in an aesthetically pleasing manner. That Jesus, who is the embodiment of the overlap 
of heaven and earth squeezed in a human form. And the mandala or this shape represented that as well as any other could possibly represent it. And it wasn't just in stained glass windows or in, the, or in paintings, but it was also in sculpture format as well. Because what we became, what we discovered as we read the scriptures and what Jesus revealed to us when he showed up on the scene and he said, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, is that in that moment he's saying, look, I am fully God and I'm fully man. I've got two feet in both of these worlds. He's saying, I am grace and I am fully truth. I'm not just part one, part the other, 50, 50. I'm 100% of, of both. He's saying, I'm the beginning and the end. I've got no beginning and I have no end. I've got both worlds, both feet rather, in both worlds. And what I'm trying to get at here is that Jesus embodied life in the overlap. And he calls his followers to do the same. I love what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 in the message translation. He says, we look at this son Jesus and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose, his intended design in everything that he created. If you ever want to know what was this whole thing supposed to look like? What did God really intend? If God is good, then why is everything in this world bad? Well, let's go back to the beginning and let's look at, well, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What's the ways in which Jesus fought for justice? What's the ways in which Jesus pursued peace? What's the ways in which Jesus taught truth and revealed grace? That was God's original design. J.R. Briggs, speaking of Jesus, says he valued, honored, and invested in men and also women. He showed compassion for the Jews, God's chosen people, and also loved the Samaritans whom the Jews despised and regarded as half-breeds. He called people to live lives of holiness, and also he was accused of being a glutton and a drunk. He was revered as the Messiah and also called a friend of sinners. Let that sink in, a friend of sinners." The kinds of people many believers work hard to avoid, Jesus welcomed. He lived in the overlap in order to build bridges to bring them, all of them, together. He lived in this sacred in-between. Now, the United States IRS tax code, it's tax season. They use this archaic term that I've always thought was kind of interesting. And recently, I've wondered... How is this term even still around? But they use this term to designate foreigners who are legally granted permission to reside in the country while retaining citizenship in another country, and they call them resident aliens. Now, it's kind of a strange term, but as odd as this phrase may sound, I do actually think it helps us capture really well the spiritual tension in this sacred overlap of being inhabitants and foreigners. In this space between is this resident alienship. Now just hang with me for a second. Because I was preparing for this message, I thought, okay, there's kind of like two groups of people who are going to hear this. Some groups, are, or, or one particular group is going to be like, oh, Jordan, I think I like where you're going, man. Yeah, let's like, let's, let's like, let's like get on people for not conforming to the world. And then there's going to be this other group of people who are like, oh, yeah, man, I, 
I think I like where you're going because you're going to tell people to stop being so dogmatic about certain things and just kind of live a little bit and have a little bit more grace and just kind of enjoy life a little bit more. And I'm not saying neither one of those. What I'm saying is there's actually supposed to be this tension that we feel as Christ followers. This tension of knowing like we're inhabitants in the world and yet we're foreigners at the exact same, the exact same time. I love how Paul writes in Ephesians 1. He, he says, I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ. You see this language here? He says, I'm writing to God's holy people. They're foreigners. They're God's people. But they live in Ephesus. They're also Ephesians. They're inhabitants. Peter says it even more clearly, speaking to Christians. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very own souls. Stanley Howaras in his book, Resident Aliens, it's a great title for a book, man. He stole a book I wish I could write. He said, when followers of Jesus Christ are baptized, their citizenship is transferred from one dominion to another. In the process, they become resident aliens in the surrounding culture. Now let's go back to our theme text in Jeremiah 29 for a moment. This is taking place generations after Israel had been freed from the Egyptian slavery. Generations after Moses goes back, has this showdown with Pharaoh, let my people go. They cross the Red Sea. And then they're later, generations later, after inheriting their promised land, they're now again hauled off into exile into this place called Babylon, which is a secular country where they just don't understand the ways and the means and the things that are taking place. And in the book of Jeremiah, we see God's call to Israel while they're in Babylon, was to retain their foundational identity as God's people, even though they were resident aliens in a foreign land. Now, when we read Jeremiah 29, generally Christians just skip right to verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you hope in a future. And it's a beautiful verse. We just take it way out of context a lot of times. And I think God has a lot of grace for us because the truth is, the plans God has for you is to give you a hope in a future. They are so that we would prosper and that we would see God's best come to fruition in our life. It just may not be as quickly or in the manner that we often think or hope. In fact, we usually use this verse and give it to high school graduates, right? But God wasn't talking to high school graduates, promising that they would thrive as they head off to college in the fall. He was speaking directly. Don't miss the context here. He was speaking directly to a large group of weary exiles living in a pagan land. And they're wondering if God was still in control. And if he was in control, whether he even cared at all about them anymore. And so despite their status as exiles, though, God sends them this letter through the prophet Jeremiah and he tells them, hey guys, hey guys, stay put. Breathe a little bit. Don't stress about where you are. Build houses, plant gardens, pray for the welfare and the prosperity of the city. And I would argue that God is telling us to do the same thing today because we too, as strange as this language may sound, are spiritual exiles. 
We are resident aliens. This is all over the New Testament. We live here. But as Christians, we don't really belong here. And if we feel like we do belong, I would argue that we aren't living the way that Jesus taught us to live. I love what C.S. Lewis said. This is so clever. He says, if we find ourselves, we find in ourselves a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so I want us to pause for just a moment and take seriously this question. How are we then to live in the midst of this reality that we are resident aliens? So what's the way forward? In large part, that's what this series is about. In fact, I would probably argue in large part, that's what church is also intended to be about, to teach us not just the scriptures, but how to live the scriptures out in the reality that the world, the reality of the world that we live in today. Shortly before Courtney and I got married, I, I spent a few months in India in this small village called Rayakutta on the southern tip of the country. And it was there where I met a friend that I still stay in contact with to this day who was fluent in six languages. When I say fluent, I mean like he knew like over a dozen languages, but was fluent in six of them. And I'm there and I'm like, bro, I'm, I'm barely catching a hold of like one of these things, you know. And this brother just interpreting for everybody English into all of these different languages throughout the, throughout the nation of, of India. And, and it dawned to me in preparation for this particular series that we must also learn to be fluent in both the language of the kingdom of God and and the language of the culture. Now, some of us are really fluent in the language of the kingdom, but we are no good to culture. Others of us are really fluent in the language of culture, but we are no benefit to the kingdom. And we are called by God as followers of Jesus to be fluent in them both. In biblical studies, there's a common word referred to as exegesis. Some of you may have heard this before, but to exegete the text or to exegete the scriptures simply means to analyze or accurately interpret a word or passage from the Bible and then also be able to clearly explain it to other people. Now, exegeting the text, really, really critically important. Like good exegesis. Whew, like there's, there's a premium in our world today for good exegetical teaching. And yet, I'd also say, though, just underneath, not equal to, but, but don't miss this, just underneath it is also, I think, an even greater premium because there's less of it. Good exegetical teaching on culture. We don't really understand how to exegete our culture today. Let me unpack this just a little bit more. We don't need to memorize a thousand verses. We don't need a degree. We don't need a degree in Old Testament theology, but we do need to become biblically and culturally bilingual. This isn't just a pastor thing. This is just a, those who have a microphone on the platform that other people elevate and think that they're more holy than, and we aren't. No, no, this is like a Christian Jesus follower thing. We need to learn how to be equipped to exegete the text, understand it and exegete culture, 
understand it as well. Dick Staub, in his book, Too Christian, Too Pagan, a really helpful book for me, he wrote, Christians often respond to culture in one of three inaccurate ways. He says, we withdraw where we retreat to our protective cocoon of comfort. And when that comfort is threatened, we combat, spending our time intensely engaged in the culture wars. Or third, we conform, assuming a chameleon-type posture in order to fit seamlessly within the culture around us. Woo! If Dick Staub isn't, isn't, isn't stepping on some of our toes this morning, and we just aren't being honest with ourselves. You ever found yourself tempted to either withdraw just run away from the world? Like you ever had a conversation with friends before and you're like, man, y'all just want to buy like 15 acres of land and like just go build our own compound? The problem with that idea is that your compound will become just as much jacked up as the millions of other compounds that have taken place in the history of our world as well. Or third, do you ever just feel like, all right then, fine. You know what? I'm just going to fight back. I'm going to combat or I'm just going to engage in culture wars. I'm just going to fight back. And, and rather than recognizing it's the hard issue that we're really after, I'm just going to try, to try to use my words to persuade people to believe what I believed ethically or morally, rather than identifying that actually the heart that only the Spirit of God can change. Or third, we just conform. We're just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it the world's way because I just want to fit in. Dick Staub, furthermore, in his book, though, he, he goes on in one of the later chapters. He says, most Christians, don't miss this. He says, they're either too Christian or too pagan. The Christians who are too Christian are very comfortable within the Christian subculture and are ill at ease when in the world. On the other hand, Christians who are too pagan are at ease with the world, but fail to integrate their faith into their everyday life. And taking Jesus into our world requires both engaging our faith and engaging the world. Yet few of us have learned to live a fully integrated life of faith in the world. And in my experience, to wholeheartedly pursue this, this resident alienship, so to speak, to embark on this journey, you will end up seeing, you will end up seeming rather, both too Christian for your non-believing friends and too pagan, so to speak, for your Christian friends. I have been accused of being too socially conservative by some, and I have been accused of being too socially progressive by others. I've been accused of using the scripture too strongly and too dogmatically by some, and I've been accused of not using enough scripture in my messages by others. What I'm saying is, you're going to be accused by people on one side that you're too far on the other, and people on the other side that you're too far on one. When you're trying to faithfully live in the tension in between. But fortunately, this resident alienship was modeled for us by Jesus. Because he was accused of being too religious for some and not religious enough by others. Jesus was, in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I love this. He was a transformed nonconformist. How good is that? Transformed nonconformist. Only Dr. King could wordsmith something as beautiful as that. 
And I think we're called to do the same. But in theory, it's easy for me, and it's probably even easy for you to sit where you are right now, for me to stand where I am right now, and to say, yeah, okay, Jesus didn't seem to fit any neat and tidy categories. I like that about Jesus. That's kind of attractive about Jesus. But when I think of the implications of what that means, though, as I follow him, I also realize that it requires me to step back and to assess my life in a way that also makes me squirm a bit. Why? Because I, like most people, I like to fit in. I don't like to stand out. Now, contrary to what emerging generations maybe even think, contrary to what we often say that we want to stand out, we don't. We, we want to go with the flow. We, we want to be a part of the mass culture. We want to feel like we're one of many, but we're uniquely valued in our own way, though, too. And yet, Jesus modeled for us a standing out that's unique to what most of us crave or what most of us pursue, because there's a real danger in real Christianity. Because if it's real, it's not exactly something we could describe as safe. And it's really only in America where this type of teaching is severely frowned upon. We don't like this type of teaching because in America, we're, we have kind of like the entrepreneur attitude when it comes to church. Everywhere that churches were introduced, everywhere that Christianity was introduced in the world, in every continent and every nation, the church begins to take on the overarching stigma or stereotype of that nation. When Christianity was introduced, when the church was introduced to the Americas, it took on this entrepreneurial attitude, this business type mindset, where everything is always meant to go to the right and up. And, and, and just, just hang with me for a moment. And in America, like the preaching that we're usually after is the type of teaching, the type of preaching that kind of morphs the scripture just enough that makes us feel really safe. It makes us feel really comfortable. You with me? Like we, we like that. And understandably so. If you think I don't like that, no, man, like we all like that. We, we like to feel like, okay, that made me feel good. Woo! Let's go do this. It, but like real Christianity is a bit reckless at times. R real Christianity is... is it's not always easy all of the time. Real Christianity requires something of us. Real Christianity doesn't say, oh, what can you do for me? It says, Jesus, you've already done so much for me. Let me pour my life out now as an offering to you. That's, that's real Christianity. I, I don't remember the quote entirely, and I probably shouldn't even try to quote it because I'm probably going to butcher it, but some of you might recall this line from C.S. Lewis's most famous book, Chronicles of Narnia, where Mr. Beaver is talking to this other animal dude, and, and, and this animal guy is about to go meet the lion. What's the lion's name? Aslan. See, I did that, like, to try to get some feedback, but actually I forgot his name. And, and so they're about to go meet Aslan, who's, who's a metaphor for Jesus in the, in the movie. 
And he's like, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of scared. I don't really want to go meet the lion, he says. He goes, is he safe? Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And he's good. Safe? No, man, like if you sign up for Christianity because it's safe, it was the wrong religion to sign up for. Christianity is the religion that was modeled for us, not only by Jesus, but by his immediate first century followers as being like, I'll do anything for this guy so far that I'll give him my actual physical life. Now, in America, we don't need to give him our physical life in the same sense that they did in the first century. But we do still need to give him the entirety of our life that we sell out for him. And it's really radical, but the teachings of Jesus are radical, people. Like, they're radical. It's crazy when you see the things that he tells of us, that he requires of us. And it can feel safe to live in a religious cocoon. It can also feel equally safe to be a Christian, but demonstrate no distinction in how we live compared to our non-Christian neighbors, friends, coworkers, and peers at school. But again, I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he says, a peculiar people. You know what what that word peculiar means? Weird. He's like, you're a strange people. Like, like he's not talking about, you know, when I think of weird, like I think of like the shopping carts at Ikea. Like, why couldn't they just make two of those wheels stationary? Like, they're the only ones in the world who are like, let's make all four of them move. And you're like, like, you design your shopping carts the same way you design your furniture. Really difficult to maneuver. Like, that's not, he's saying, no, like, we're strange in the sense that, like, we stand out uniquely in the midst of, we're not to conform as inhabitants or foreigners, but rather we live with two feet in the others. We are really resident aliens. So then how do we faithfully navigate this space between? Well, I want to just briefly share, and I, I mean that when I say briefly, just three quick points. And I, I, think, I think we have to embrace orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. And we're going to talk more about this in particular as we do a real deep dive on this in the fall. But for now, let me just give you a general overview. And I use these words intentionally if you're taking notes, you could write them down in this order. You could say, you could say, excuse me, you could say wisdom, courage, and compassion. But I'm choosing to use words that are actually Christian terms that have been passed down for generations, for nearly two millennia now. And the reason I do that rather than just saying wisdom, courage, and compassion is because I want us to know, friends, that this isn't new to us. This isn't something that we've now had to navigate just in the 21st century here in America, in a post-Christian culture. No, no, no. This is something that followers of Jesus have been navigating for millennia on end. And they've been talking about this for an equal amount of time. And so as, as, as churchy as these words may seem, they're really critical for us to fully embrace. Orthodoxy just means right thinking 
or right believing. To say that we have an orthodox Christian faith is to say that we have a faith that has been passed down for generations, that we are not trying to interpret the scripture in some newfound, newfangled way, but rather we're seeing what do the original authors and translators of the scripture intend when they wrote this text, when they were translating it from the original language, and we believe the same. It's right thinking, right believing. And for centuries, church fathers and mothers have painstakingly developed creeds and confessions, all in an effort to clearly articulate what we actually believe. Because for centuries, there's been false teachers and folks who tried to interpret the Bible and say, ah, I'm not really sure if that's actually what it meant. And so this is, I think, just going to fit better with culture today. And Jesus is like, no, man, that breaks my heart. Right thinking, right believing is important because your beliefs determine what you think, say, and do. You know that? What you believe determines what you say, determines what you think, determines what you eventually do. Dallas Willard says it like this, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. You see that? We don't believe in Jesus because we say we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus when we reveal that we believe in Jesus, which leads to the second point, orthopraxy, which is right living or right behavior in one sense. Our right believing ought to lead to a right doing. Faith without works is dead. It's dead. It's, it's useless is what James means when he says that. It doesn't take us anywhere. And so orthopraxy is just as important as orthodoxy. One of the elements in Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, one of the elements that makes his teaching so rich is his dual emphasis on right thinking, right believing, and on right living. I'll give you just an overarching, my, my words, just kind of these three chapters from Jesus' most famous teaching, what's he saying? He says, don't speak poorly about others. Don't degrade the image of God in others by lusting after them sexually. Settle disagreements outside of court. Keep your marital commitments. Listen to the emphasis on both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Lend to others without expecting a return. Love and pray for those who don't reciprocate. Give to the underprivileged secretly. Fast discreetly. Live without worrying. Don't have a judgmental spirit. Jesus is saying both of these things matter. Because orthodoxy without orthopraxy leads to hypocrisy. Right believing without right living is, in my opinion, the number one thing that keeps people back from, from seeing Jesus for who he really is too. It's not that people don't want to believe in Jesus. There is far more compelling evidence to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross than there is to not believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not the evidence that's holding people back. It's us and our hypocrisy our misalignment between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, our Christian character, church, it matters. It really matters. 
Character matters. I'm so tired. I'm like exhausted of seeing people who say one thing, but they live something entirely different. Heaven forbid you see me do something that's out of line with what I preach, and you will, but heaven forbid you don't say something to me about it. Like call me out. Because I don't want my life to be the reason why somebody else says, I don't know about that Jesus fella. And yet the truth is, is all of us have a part to play in this reality. All of us have to accept our own individual responsibility. That we cannot be people who just say, Jesus Christ is King on Sundays, but then on Monday, like we cheat on our taxes and we lie to our wife and we don't follow through with our word to our kids. Or, or we cheat on our test at, at school. Or whatever it might be. Or we just, we just kind of do whatever we want, whenever we want with no, or just complete disregard for the scriptures or accountability from, from one another. And then lastly, orthopathy. Now this is a term that's been popularized recently, more so in psychology. But this is a term that, again, dates back for millennia now within Christianity, it means right emotions or right affections. There are right emotions that we should feel for things as well. Like when we see injustice, there's, there's an emotion that should arise within us. When we see racism on display, we ought not try to explain it away because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel comfortable. No, there should be emotions that come up like that's, that's just not right. And I understand that even some of my other Christian brothers and sisters aren't standing up for it, but I refuse to conform to the norm and not stand for what is true. Not just to say I believe it, but to live it out. There's, a, there's an empathy. There's a gentleness. There's a kindness. There's a grace that should swell up within us. And this does take time and it does require effort as well. It does require energy as well. But what I'm after here, what, what I want us to understand though, is that feeling or faith rather is far more than a feeling, yes. But it's not less than. Like we ought to feel stuff. Even in worship, it's okay to feel stuff. To allow our mind to align itself with the words that we sing on a screen and to feel the emotion of gratitude begin to overwhelm us for what Jesus has done. So then practically, what does this look like? And I give this just, I mean, this is, I am, just forgive me here because this is a broad brushstroke. I mean, this is such a broad brushstroke here. But in an attempt to make this a bit more pragmatic, how do we live faithfully in this space between as resident aliens? Let me just give us a few examples. What does this look like then? Let's just use money as an example for a moment. What is right believing? What is, what is right thinking? Just so you know, if you're taking pictures, you're welcome to. We put all of our slides online too every week. So you're always welcome to go back and grab them if you ever want to. They're always laying, am I correct in saying that? They're always, always online? Good, you give me a heads up, okay. I don't wanna lie. I've never lied in my life before. <laughs> oh, there's number one, but anyway. Orthodoxy, right believing, right thinking. Our money belongs to God. Okay, so then what's right living? How do I live this out? I use money as a tool to serve God 
and to serve others. Okay, what's the right feeling I should have about money then? Like, how should I feel about it? I should live open-handed with it, which is really hard to do. Like, but like this is what we're after. And it's a, it's a long journey. Dating back to our series we just concluded a few weeks ago, this process of being formed in the image of Jesus, of aligning our orthodoxy with the paraxy, with the, with the pathy, it's a lifelong journey, man. This doesn't happen overnight. How about our sexuality? What's our right belief, our right thinking about it? It's designed by God. How about orthopraxy? How do I live this out? Well, there's freedom as it relates to our sexuality, but within the limits of God's design. How about orthopathy? How should I feel about my sexuality? I don't need to be afraid of it. I also don't need to idolize it. Think about sex in particular for a moment, of which we will talk about in the next series. I know I've mentioned that a handful of times. And again, I'll tell you exactly when in that series. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few weeks in advance notice so that you're aware in case you want to kind of your kids, certain age, whatever, you want to make sure that they're not here. I understand all of that. So I'll give you a heads up. But sometimes sex is viewed at a young age, like for me in the, in the environment that I grew up in, and I'm super grateful, but there was, a, there was a sense in which, like I should be like terrified of sex. I should be like afraid of it. Even though like everything in me was like, I ain't afraid of it at all. You know what I mean? And, and, and yet there was like this sense in which then like the world just idolized sex. And so here I am like on one end, like feeling as though I'm taught to like be terrified of it. And yet I'm also hearing, but it's a gift from the Lord. So I'm like, I'm afraid of a gift? I don't understand. And then on the other, on the other end, like culture's like just idolizing it. And just do whatever you want with your sexuality. Live however you want it. And sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want. And, and yet Jesus teaches something different. He says, no, no, it is a gift. But the gift, like every good gift, is revealed to you when the time is right. There are some gifts that my son at nine can't have that my daughter can have. It drives him crazy, but she's 15. There's other things that Judah now has that Sophia didn't have at her age. And she said, I never had that. I'm like, yeah, we learned on you, baby. We... And so he's good now. He's good. You are our guinea pig. So thank you for trial and error. Time. It's a gift from God. So how should I live it out? I want to steward it for God. I want to use it the way that honors him. Orthopathy. How do I feel about time? I'm grateful for it. Whatever time God gives me, I'm grateful for it. Whether that's how long my life ends up being, or how, whether that's how long I get to interact in a particular place or location or people group that I really want to hang out with. I'm just, I'm grateful for the time that I've been, I've been given. Words. What do I believe about them? They matter. How do I live them out? I use them to encourage, build up, challenge, call up. Sometimes that means, I, I use the word call up, but maybe a better word is even just to call out. Sometimes we got to use our words to hold each other accountable. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, well, I'm sure we'll teach on this someday, but the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. Some of you are familiar. There's a dude who's sleeping with his stepmom and, and the church is just like, we're fine with that, no big deal. And Paul writes some letters. He says, fellas, hey, guys, that's not okay. You need to call him out. You need, you need to get that sin out of your church. And so there's a time 
where we just encourage. And there's a time where we challenge and we call out. How should I feel about my words? I'm responsible for my words. People, people are made in the image of God. That's what we believe. We live this out by loving our neighbor with grace and truth. How do we feel about people? We honor people. At least we desire to honor people. Tim Keller says it like this, speaking of both our sexuality and money. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. Now listen to this. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. Resident aliens. I'll close with this final quote from Emmanuel Katagongli. I don't know how to say his last name properly, but that's how I've been saying it for a couple years now. He's a Ugandan theologian. He's just brilliant. Some of, his just, some of his stuff just challenges me deeply. But he's speaking of the early church here, first century Christians. He says, the community in Antioch in the first century, they brought together Jews and Samaritans, Greeks and Romans, slaves and free, men and women, in a way that was so confusing that people around them didn't know what to call them. So they're like, well, call them Christians. The only way that they knew how to describe their peculiar actions was to say that they were followers of an odd preacher from Galilee. The world is longing for such new and odd communities in our time. I pray the time is now and that the resurrection might begin in us, that we would be the peculiar, strange, resident aliens in our world today. And so I want to invite us to allow the Holy Spirit this morning to convict us. Like sometimes I do not like the convicting power of the Spirit, but I also know, whoo, I need the convicting power of the Spirit. And as a church, we all do. That's what makes us different. Not in a way that we toot our horns. Look at us, we're different. No, no, no. But in a way that creates a mirror for people to see Jesus. Look at us. It's angled in such a way where you're like, you can now see Jesus. And so is there an area of your life where you've either been conforming or you've been just so entrenched in like Christian culture that you're really no earthly good. How do we live with two feet in both worlds? Family planted. Again, I love the words of John Stott, 20th century theologian. He said, in both the word and the world, that's what we're after. That's the church, I believe, wholeheartedly of the future. So would you close your eyes for a moment, bow your heads. And just take a moment to reflect and ask the Spirit of God how he may encourage, how he may challenge, how he may build up or call out of you this morning. Any area of our life that's just been out of alignment. And so Spirit of God, we welcome you to convict us, to challenge us. Come on, Ethos, would you lean in? Maybe you're newer. Maybe this is really odd to you this morning. I understand how strange this can seem, but would you even take a risk today? Would you just take this moment 
and trust that the Spirit of God would meet you even where you are. If you're at a place of unbelief this morning, God will meet you there. If you're in a place of faith this morning, God will meet you there. If you're not sure what you believe today, God will meet you there. If you're sure of the firm foundation of Christ in your life, God will meet you there. So each of us together, underneath your breath, would you say out loud the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do with what I just heard? And then take the next few moments in silence as our prayer team begins to make their way down front for a moment of response. But take the next 30 seconds and and just allow the gentle, still small voice of the Spirit on the inside of you to speak to you or to give an image into your mind, to put a picture or something that reveals to you the area of your life that you need to shift, that you need to rearrange, that you need to hand over to Christ. Father, we thank you again for the few moments that we had to share together this morning. God, that we choose not to take that lightly. And we ask that you would. We invite your spirit even now. Church, can we agree with this? To seal in our hearts anything that's been spoken that points us and leads us to Jesus. Anything that doesn't, God. Anything that I've said this morning that causes us to become distracted from Christ. Father, I pray that your spirit would cause us to set that on the shelf of our life, so to speak, in a way that wouldn't distract us from who you really are. Jesus, we desire to be with you, to become like you, and to do what you did. In Jesus' name, everybody who agreed said amen and amen. Hey, if you are newer to Ethos, thanks again for being here this morning. We would encourage you to swing by our new here table out in the foyer. We'd love to give you a free gift, just a small way, token of our appreciation, just to say thank you for hanging with us this morning. If we can serve you in any way, shape, or form, do not hesitate to reach out. Let us know how we can help make a difference in your life. There's a dedicated button on our website specific for that purpose. Otherwise, church, love you so much. Have a great rest of your Sunday morning. We'll see you all out next weekend.